Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. G'day and welcome to the Space Junk Podcast. I'm your host, Annie Hanma, and today's guest is the Deputy Director of CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science, Dr. Sarah Pierce. We talk about Sarah's career path, which includes the UK Parliament, the Large Hadron Collider, and the contemporary challenges and joys of managing the Square Kilometre Array. But before we launch in, I'd like to give a well-deserved shout out to the team from New Law University, Delhi, who recently took out the finals of the Manfred Lacks International Space Law Mooting Competition, which is one of the only competitive sports I will actively follow. I've been following their progress from the very beginning, and it was incredibly exciting. So congratulations to Abhishek, Shub, and Anmol, and a big congratulations also to the runners-up from the University of Vienna. Now, onto the podcast. Sarah, it's so exciting to be talking to you. How are you? Good morning. I thank you ever so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Well, let's get stuck straight in. Um, I thought we would start, Sarah, with your experiences studying in the UK. For many Australians, um, this might not be as familiar, but for the international listeners, I'm sure they'll also enjoy hearing about it. From what I understand from my rigorous online stalking, Um, you studied physics at the University of Oxford. Tell me about that. How how was that for someone in the UK to go to Oxford? It's almost a mythical place for the rest of us. Look, it was really great. I very much enjoyed my time at Oxford. I came from a kind of fairly standard school and we didn't have many people who went to Oxford or Cambridge. And I knew one person who'd been to do physics at Oxford. And so I spoke to her about which college should I apply for, because I really had no idea. Um, And she um, recommended the college I went to, Worcester, because she said that the physics professor there had a reputation for being very supportive of women in science. And so I applied for that and I got in, which was very exciting. And he was was really great, Professor Aitchison. He was a theoretical physicist. There were two women out of the six doing physics in my college that year, which was really good. Um, So it was nice to have another woman kind of there, not not be one sort of on my own. And I had a lovely, lovely time at Oxford. I mean, it's a quite unusual um, experience for university. When I did my PhD, I went to University of Leicester, which is more of a kind of standard university and realised how different at that stage Oxford was. You know, you dress up in what's called subfusk to go to your exams and um, and the colleges are all beautiful. Worcester, the only college with a lake. I highly recommend it if anybody's thinking of applying to Oxford. Um, But the teaching is fantastic. 
right? As you would imagine, you know, you have lots of small group tutorials and the lecturers are, are in kind of at the top of their field. It was a really, it was a great experience. Was it high pressure coming from a sort of, as you say, very normal school and getting into Oxford? I think the university was pretty welcoming, in fact. I mean, I vividly remember going to interview and being asked a question about diffraction, which I got completely wrong. Um, but, um, but the tutor kind of explained to me why I'd got it wrong. And it was very clear that they weren't interested in knowing whether you got the answer right or wrong, but in understanding kind of how you could learn and understand and that it was very much a kind of training experience. And so I think that sort of takes, you know, at least some of the pressure off that it's about the process, about learning how to do physics, not about kind of being a brilliant physicist from the start. It's such a shame for the students um, this year who've had to start university kind of remotely because of course, a really important part of that university experience is, you know, well, in the UK, a lot of people live away from home and it's developing that social life. And I played for my, college cricket team and you know it's doing all those sorts of things and um, which is so hard to do for, for if you're kind of you know learning remotely. I didn't know you played cricket that's so cool. <laughs> I did I was a kind of you know not great medium pace bowler. Oh fabulous <laughs> and punting did you go punting? I did once or twice it wasn't like something we did every weekend but it's certainly something you can do at Oxford and I also for one one term only i coxed a rowing crew um, oh wow but it was a kind of mythical term in oxford it rained so much that the river had to be closed and the competition at the end of the term was cancelled so i only coxed my crew about four times in the entire term and then i decided that getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go rowing wasn't for me so what came next for you after oxford well, I went to do my PhD at the University of Leicester, where I worked on calibration of the detectors for the Chandra X-ray satellite. Mm -hmm. um, and as part of that, one summer, I went to International Space University um, to the summer session there. So that was 10 weeks in Barcelona. I was How a bit was that? of It was fantastic. I had been kind of waiting to sort of graduate and be my PhD so I would be able to go to International Space <laughs> University. I was a bit of a space nerd, I think it's fair to say. So I went to space school when I was 17. The first time really I had been with a group who were also really interested in space. I was a bit of an outlier at my school around that and space mm. school was recommended by one of my teachers. And just finally to kind of be in, envi in an environment where you could talk about kind of space all day and have lectures about it and be with other people who were also interested in that was just a revelation for me. Anna Moore was in the same year as me, Anna Moore from ANU um, now. And then I went to International Space Camp. I was one of the UK's kind of two reps to the first International Space Camp, which was in Huntsville in Alabama when I was 18. And it was amazing, pretending to be an astronaut for a week. And then while I was at Oxford, I helped found the Oxford branch of what's called UK SEGS, UK Students for the Exploration and Development of Space with a couple of friends from space school who were also at Oxford. And so I've been through the whole kind of, you know, space educational complex in the UK and ISU was really the next stage of that. After you finished your PhD, um, what did you do then? Um, so 
while I was at International Space University, when you, when you go for the summer session program, you have to decide what you will work on, which kind of part of a project you will work on. And I was quite interested in policy. And so I decided to work in the policy section of our project, which was about solar system missions. Um, and I really enjoyed that kind of policy side of it. And so after my PhD, applied for a whole range of things, but in the end, I decided to go into the UK public service in what's called the civil service fast stream, um, which is a kind of accelerated training program for public servants. And so I actually went into the Department of Social Security in the UK, which was a bit of a departure from my science and space background. And I spent a year working in child support policy, which was a really interesting insight into how government works. So sitting in government, writing speeches for ministers, sitting in parliament to help brief, going to um, meetings with ministers. I was involved in writing a government green paper. It's quite amazing really that a year after coming out of my PhD at university, you're kind of thrown really right into the deep end of all, how, of all this, how, of how government works. Mm. Um, and after working in the fast stream for a couple of years, I applied for a job in parliament, in, in the UK parliament, in the parliamentary office of science and technology. So then I moved there and I worked there for five or six years um, as a physical sciences and IT advisor. And so that was really good because it allowed me to draw on both my policy experience that I'd gained mm. and, and my science background. I thought I, I found the skills that I gained really useful, both in my job in social, in social security, but then also in particular in my job in parliament, writing was such a critical skill right mm. being able to condense a brief down so that it was understandable by um ministers who didn't have any kind of science background and didn't have long to look at it in parliament so that we used to write four page briefs called post notes and um, parliamentary office of science and technology notes on science issues and they had to be completely independent like they had to take no political stance because we were for parliament not government and we were there to brief parliamentarians of both sides. But the idea was that these briefs would pass the cornflakes test. So if there was a vote coming up or a debate, a parliamentarian could look online or grab a hard copy of these over their cornflakes in the morning and have a quick look through this four page brief and then sound knowledgeable or know enough to know kind of what they needed to know for, for voting or for debating in the after afternoon. So it was a real skill. And I have never had my writing so strongly edited and critiqued since or before as when I worked in that job. And it was such a great experience, you know, to have your work really picked apart. And I think we don't do that enough. It, it was strange then I moved into academia. Mm. And of course, if you're really writing papers, then sometimes your work is really heavily picked apart. But if I was just writing kind of briefings or press releases or something, then mostly people would just make a few minor changes. And I was used to a process where people would like take apart every paragraph, rearrange everything, say, no, this doesn't make sense. Um, and I thought that was a really, you know, a really useful exercise for me. It made, it made me think much more carefully about how I structure my writing and how clearly I write. Um, mm. The other real skill that you gathered in that job was engaging with stakeholders. 
So it's amazing. If you phone up and say, I'm working for Parliament doing a brief on X, everybody will talk to you. Everybody. You can get into any door. And so I would go visit, you know, CEOs or chief policy advisors for all sorts of different organisations. And they would talk to me, you know, openly about kind of what the issues were at the moment and policy questions and things like this. It was an amazing experience. So what happened then? You're working in this science policy advisory role with UK Parliament. What's next for Sarah? What happened? So I did that for several years, but in the end I got slightly demoralised. Um, mm. So many of the parliamentarians you work with are really like they're absolutely in it to make things better. I worked with a number of members of the House of Lords who'd been very eminent um, mm. scientists in their day and were really seriously, you know, involved in policy debates and taking. But also a lot of politics was kind of about winning. You know, it was, yeah. it was us versus them. And there was a, there was a parliamentarian who we were pretty close with and he, his, his motives were very good. But he said at one point when we were sat in the pub, he said, look, it's not really, it's not, nothing's worth getting unless you've had to fight the other side for it. And I thought that's not, you know, it's not really the kind of environment that I wanted to spend a long, a much longer in. It had been a fantastic experience. Mm. And really there's nothing like kind of walking into the houses of Westminster for work yeah? <laughs> and being able to take tea, people to a tea on the terrace and things. But a job was advertised um, working on the Large Hadron Collider um, in outreach and dissemination for the, for the computing group in the UK who were doing computing for the Large Hadron Collider at Queen Mary University of London. And mm. so I applied for that because it was very much, I thought, I'd really like to go into an area where everybody is kind of working for the same thing. You know, you may have sort of slight disagreements about how you get there, but in the end, everybody's trying to achieve the same goal. And I wasn't completely sure that was true in politics. I, I want to dig more into that, actually, because <laughs> I think academia does have this, there's this idea about it, um, that in scientific projects, that people work together really well and that it's all about, say, the science. So, you know, the interpersonal stuff isn't a problem or the ideological differences aren't a problem. Do you think that is true? Because as someone who does sociology of science, I kind of, I guess it's my job to sniff out where the problems are and identify those. Um, I'm not saying it's the same as in Parliament where literally their job is to fight each other every day. <laughs> I think it would be exhausting. But, but there are issues that exist. Uh, can you pick apart for me the differences between them a little more? Look, it might be that I've just been lucky, but the experience that I've had in working in kind of large scale science collaborations has been, there obviously are, you know, both individual and institutional tensions, right? Mm. And people do have their own drivers, but I worked in particle physics and now in astronomy. And I think they are both very, collaborative activities, particle physics, more than anything I've ever worked in. Mm. Yeah, for decades and decades, all particle physicists have done is work in enormous collaborations. And so they have down to a fine art, you know, how you run these collaborations, how you make decisions, you know, how you manage kind of publishing, how you pick your next spokesperson for the collaboration. 
So that was mm. just a really insightful experience for me to work for um, on the project management team of a collaboration across kind of more than 10 UK universities and CERN and to see how particle physicists collaborate. And was there politics? I mean, of course, there's a bit of politics in everything. Mm. Um, but, but I did much more get the impression that everybody was working towards the same goal. And perhaps because, perhaps because it was a collaboration I worked for, and I wasn't kind of an individual scientist, kind of trying to make my way up the up academia. Um, mm. I was able to maybe step back a bit more. So I certainly agree with you that there are questions in the sociology of science, and it's not true that everybody is, you know, generally working together in peace and harmony all the time. Mm. But my experience has been that that is broadly true a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, I think sociologists of science get a little too aggressive with this stuff. And, and I think, to be honest, we're paying the price for that, for the hangovers from the 80s and 90s. Um, they're, they're really kind of aggressive stuff that went on. And in many ways, the more interesting question is acknowledging that there might be these sorts of tensions or competitive elements occurring within a large collaboration that nonetheless works. What is it about the project management? What is it about that collaboration that does work. Um, that's what my research focuses on. And I think that's a way more interesting question because we can learn things about then how to work together better rather than just pointing out all the times that someone threw a tantrum about someone else's paper, which is <laughs> nonetheless entertaining. Hey, it's Annie here with a little footnote to this. So if you want to know what we're talking about here, Google the science wars. It's really interesting and very much worth more than just an offhand remark, which I gave it in this podcast. So I just wanted to jump in and say that. All right, we'll get back to the podcast. Uh, but you were there really at the coalface in a way working in the project management side of that big science project. So, you know, from your perspective, working in that role, what was it that you were doing to try to facilitate that collaboration? Yeah, look, we were actually, um, we had an anthropologist, a sociologist of science come and sit with us for quite a while and write papers on us. Um, oh, fantastic. Interesting experience from the London School of Economics. Um, so his conclusions um, were that many of the, um, Many of the scientists running this collaboration had essentially grown up in particle physics, physics together, right? Mm. There were, in fact, pictures of people at PhD student kind of summer schools where you could pick out the leadership of this, of the collaboration I was in. It was called Grid PP. Mm. Um, and that they just absorb, you know, how particle physicists, physics works as a kind of collaborative enterprise all the way through from their PhD. Um, the other conclusion he came to was that we took a lot of, that we discussed a lot of issues informally, right? And so mm. the collaboration, which was about kind of 70 people, we would get together two or three times a year, all hands meetings, um, and the management team would meet for a whole day together. But importantly, the sociologist thought, perhaps more important than that was the time that we spent kind of socializing together afterwards. And that was the time that a lot of the kind of nitty gritty difficult issues of the collaboration were addressed and dealt with about how mm. to go forward. Um, at least that was what he concluded when he watched it. <laughs> that's fascinating. That's really good that you got that 
feedback back. Did you feel when, I'm so curious, when you knew that someone was there watching you and writing about you, mm. how did you feel? I think we were fine with it. So the other thing that I found interesting about Grid PP was that all the minutes, everything was very transparent. Mm. So I have never been in a management team, either before or since, where all the minutes are posted on the web for anybody to see. Wow. Right? And, and they were unabridged minutes. There, there might have been the occasional time when we were talking about an individual and we take that out. But essentially, you would, they were just the same minutes that everybody would get, full minutes. And that transparency, I, I really enjoyed. You know, um, it kind of, it, it allowed the members of the collaboration to feel that they were trusted to really understand what was happening in their management team and exactly what discussions were going on. Mm. Um, so I don't know if that's how, what happens in all particle physics collaborations, and maybe I'm giving an excessively rosy picture of how mm. particle physics works, and I'm sure maybe particle physicists listening to this who don't have any experience like this at all. But I was just very impressed with the way that they ran a kind of open, structured collaboration um, and how successfully that seemed to deliver. Well, if you're out there and you're a particle physicist who disagrees, feel free <laughs> to get in contact. The spacejunkpod at gmail.com. <laughs> and if you'd like me to come and sit at your research table and listen to what you say, also keen for a post-PhD project. So then, Sarah, let's roll forward to CSIRO. And I'm very curious as to how you came to land in Australia. So my, my, my partner at the time was Australian. Um, okay. And so we had lived in London. Um, together for for quite some time and we had small children and mm. um and but his parents were out here and so we decided it would be nice to for the children to spend some time in australia at least um slightly different um lifestyle and get to know their sort of grand their grandparents on his side um, and so we moved out and in fact we lived in torquay um for um, seven years on the um victorian on the, on the coast in Victoria, which was certainly a culture shock for me coming from London. Um, yeah. <laughs> kind of small. Now, Torquay is not a kind of a typical Australian small town. It's a tourist town and it is, it's quite um, progressive in many ways and it's full of people who've moved from Melbourne and things and there's a lot of new people there all the time and it's growing. So, so in that respect, that helped the culture shock a little bit, but it was still quite more different than I imagined, I think. I'm just imagining you sort of packing up your life from London and, and moving down under. Did you have any sense of what to expect? It seems very brave to kind of just move to Australia. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd visited Australia, of course, several times um, mm. with my partner. And, um, and you know, it's it's interesting a culture shock coming to Australia because in some ways the culture is not that different. Of course, the language is the same, um, and you know, a lot of the kind of cultural references are quite similar. But mm. but you don't realise growing up somewhere how much you absorb just day to day. So I remember we got to Australia and I watched Carols from the Domain the first year. Oh yeah, and I literally knew who nobody was. <laughs> anybody on it at all and and I knew that if I'd watched a similar thing in the UK I would have known who everybody else was because these are just kind of cultural references right? yeah. and after kind of um, 15 years in Australia 
now I know who at least some of the people in calcium domain are. But it, but it is just interesting kind of how much you absorb and how much you take for granted what you know about your country. Yeah. 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 Oh, that sounds fascinating. And so you came out to Turkey and what happened from there? How did you wind up at CSIRO? Well, so I was very, I was very fortunate. So in my role in Grid PP, um, I told them I was moving to Australia and they offered that I could work remotely. Um, mm -hmm. And so I worked, I went half time and I worked remotely for them firstly in this dissemination role. And then I became project manager for the project. Um, after a couple of years. And then when my kids were both at full time at school, I went back to full time work. But it was just the perfect solution for me. And I'm incredibly grateful that they gave me that opportunity because I was able to live in this kind of beautiful place by the sea, be there during the day for my kids when they were small. So, you know, working part time, my son in daycare a couple of days a week. But even when they were at school, then because I wasn't working during the day, like in an office. I could go to school assemblies and sports day and help out at school council and things like this in a way that would have been much more difficult if I was kind of in the office and then have my meetings in the evening and sometimes mm. kind of overnight and things um, and, you know, work in the day when I could. So it was incredibly flexible. And I was just mm. so, I was so fortunate to have that opportunity when my children were very small to be able to keep my career kind of going in that way um, and but have that kind of flexibility. I like to think that as a country, we're getting better at that sort of thing, especially with COVID. I think we've all had to get comfortable with the idea of not even comfortable. It's been, you know, for the people who are office people who have done that their whole careers and look down their noses at flexible working, <laughs> they've been forced to work from home. So in a way, it's been an enforced change that I hope will stay with us because I do think it's something that the public sector and um, you know, government, especially in New South Wales, does incredibly well, the flexible working thing. But for the private sector, it's been a, a bit more of a um, culture shock, I think. But this idea that you'd, you'd have a job that was on a different time zone and that leaves you free during the day in Australia is quite brilliant. I think more people need to look into this. <laughs> and there are, there are pros and cons, I think, of this mm. sort of a model. Well, I mean, one of the cons, obviously, is that you have meetings at midnight and things. Um, oh, sure. But, but also, I did fly back to the UK at least a couple of times a year, you know, mm. at my own cost, um, because I thought it was important to still see people face to face some of the time. So for these all hands mm. meetings I talk about, talked about earlier, I flew back to, mm. to, to make it clear to everybody that I was still kind of fully embedded. In the, mm. in the job and fully kind of working for them and doing the same kind of job that I had before, even though I was, I was now in Australia doing it. Um, and I thought that was an important thing. But, you know, you don't get the same sorts of opportunities um, when you're on a different continent, frankly, than you do if you're there. You know, there mm. are committee things that you can't easily join or you don't, you don't get quite the same chance to be part of the community. But, of course, there are other advantages that you get. So, so then, yeah. so I, I sort of kept an eye out and I'd actually applied to CSIRO previously. Um, in fact, once before we even moved to Australia um, and, and then once while I was working for Grid PP to, um, 
as a program manager role for, for the ASCAP project, which is um, which is the new telescope that we've built. Um, and in both those cases, I think I came second in the recruitment. So then I found this, then this job was advertised the deputy director. And um, I thought it was probably a bit of a step up, but I would go for it anyway. Um, and yeah, I was really pleased to be successful in, in the job. And in fact, a lot of the skills that I had gathered in Grid PP as project manager and in parliament, you know, and in the public service and things, they all came came together kind of in the in in this new job as deputy director of astronomy and space science um you know i was responsible for a reasonably large team but also working on the finances which drew very much on the work i'd done as project manager um, mm. working in health and safety in hr and things um and then i had the opportunity as well to lead some of our work on the square kilometer array which was fantastic. And one of the reasons that I'd be looking forward to joining C CSRO anyway, because I knew I liked working on large scale international science projects from having worked on the Large Hadron Collider. And, and so the SKA, you know, it's the next great opportunity to do that in astronomy. For people who are listening to this, who aren't across what the SK is, a SKA is, and I'll say we have some listeners from parts of the world where they may not have heard of it. Um, sure. I think at last count we had some listeners in, I think there was someone in Uzbekistan, we have a couple of people in Russia, you know, we have people from all over the world listening to this, India. So a quick summary, what is the Square Kilometre Array? And I guess more particularly, what is it that draws you to it beyond it being a big project? What is it about what it's trying to do or I don't know, tell us the thing about the Square Kilometre Array. So the Square Kilometre Array is an international collaboration, it has 15 countries involved at the moment, um, oh. which will build the next generation of radio telescopes. And it will build two, two telescopes, one in South Africa and one in Australia. Mm -hmm. um, and in Australia, um, we, along with our international partners, will build what's called SKA Low. So it's a low frequency telescope which means that it doesn't look like a kind of radio telescope, like a big dish that you imagine. What it looks like is a whole, an, an array of antennas. So they look a bit like Christmas trees made out of um, aluminium. And, um, and then they will be spread across the desert in Western Australia, which is our newest radio astronomy site in, in, um, in Australia. It's called the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory. And so we're out in the desert because it's radio quiet there. In order to listen to these very faint whispers of a radio astronomy that we need to that we need to listen to, you have to go essentially where there are very few people, because mm. people, well, not people themselves, but the things that people carry with them, like mobile phones and their cars and their computers, and so many things that we do make radio noise. And so we want to go where it's quiet. Um, and so we're 350 kilometers outside Geraldton in Western Australia at this new site. Um, and there we will build an array of 130,000 antennas spread across 60 kilometers. And the aim is that the square kilometer array will be able to look back for the first time to what we call the epoch of reionization or more poetically, the phase just after that, which is called the cosmic dawn. And it's when the 
first stars and galaxies started to shine after the Big Bang, and nobody has been able to see this yet. It's very difficult to look for. You have to subtract all the things that come in the foreground before that, before you mm -hmm. can get back to that picture of what happened just after the Big Bang. Um, and so SKLO, which we will start to build next year, um, probably take about seven or eight years to, to build and will be by far the largest telescope of its kind. Um, and I have no doubt will deliver amazing science. Um, so I love both of the kind of international collaboration aspect of it. The fact that Australia is, you know, along with South Africa, the best place in the world to do this kind of work. Um, you know, and the really strong technical challenges that we have. This is an enormous big data telescope. Even after we processed all the data, we'll still have to kind of store hundreds of petabytes of data a year for the astronomers to be able to access and use. And, and that's after it's been kind of um, selected down by sort of factors of hundreds and thousands. Um, so the technical challenges are really large and I, you know, I like that. I like working in a big international collaboration right at the cutting edge, trying to deliver things that nobody else has done. Sarah, what's next for you? It seems like you're doing amazing things. What does the next five years look like? <laughs> well, so I think much of my next five years is probably going to be um, absorbed with SKA. So mm. as I mentioned, so we've been doing design for SKA from, for five or six years now. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been involved in international treaty organization um, negotiations for Australia. So I was the chief science negotiator for Australia in that. So Australia has just ratified the SKA treaty. Um, we need, now the UK has to ratify it and then there'll be enough countries have ratified for the treaty to come into force. Mm -hmm. And then the first meeting of the SKA intergovernmental organization should take place hopefully in December. Then, SKA will approve the start of construction and then we'll start to build the telescope. And I think there's, there'll be plenty of work there for me over the next seven or eight years as we kind of build the telescope and start to operate it. And you know, we have to recruit a whole load of people in Australia in order to help us do, do this. Um, and we have to you know, understand a lot of cutting edge technology. So I think it's a really great challenge. But the other area that I've been working on, which is probably of interest to your listeners, is mm. I also lead CSRO's space program. Mm -hmm. So with the establishment of the Australian Space Agency a couple of years ago, CSIRO um, thought that it was useful to set up a kind of coordinating group within the organisation to help build CSRO's space capability. CSRO has been doing things in space for decades, of course. I mean, the Parkes Radio Telescope, which we run, helped broadcast some of Neil Armstrong's footsteps from the moon. Um, we help, we, we operate the Canberra Deep Space Communication Complex on behalf of NASA as part of their deep space network. Um, and we have, you know, 70 or 80 people who work in Earth observation, but we didn't have a kind of coordinating body for that. And so I've helped set that up over the last couple of years. And then we've also established a new R&D program called a Space Technology Future Science Platform, which is going out to all of our different business units across CSIRO 
and looking at the technology that they have expertise in and saying, can you apply that to space? So working with our mining teams on space in situ resource utilization um, with our um, health and biosecurity teams on um, human space flight questions um, with Data61, who are our um, data experts on big data questions from space. It's been a really quite wild ride for the last couple of years for CSRO in space as we've kind of brought every single business unit on board into the kind of space area in many cases where they weren't doing anything in space at all. So that's been the kind of other aspect of my job for the last couple of years. And, you know, as Australia continues to grow its space industry and we continue to kind of develop these technologies and hopefully then sort of commercialize them and move them out into, into being used in the space ecosystem, that's also part of what I'll be doing. It sounds absolutely brilliant. I want your job. Sarah. <laughs> my job is yeah no I really I really I really do enjoy my job I and mean, the people I work with are fantastic you know CSRO is a, you know a great place to work with really kind of strong vision um, as well mm. of what as the national science agency we can kind of do for Australia and I've really really enjoyed that one example um, is a project called Aquawatch which we recently launched with the SmartSat CRC mm -hmm. um, and together we're going to spend a year looking at how space technology and ground-based sensors might together form an integrated network to monitor water quality across Australia. And then once we've worked out what that network might look like, we'll go and see if we can make that a reality. Um, and it's this kind of kind of vision and large scale sort of mission challenges, um, you know, that really kind of get me out of bed in the morning. So. Yeah. Oh, it sounds super exciting. If if you could give people listening um, one or two things that they should go away and think about, read, look up, look at, what would that be? Well, I guess if you haven't, if you don't, if you don't know about the Square Kilometre Array, I recommend that you go have a little look at that. It's got some fantastic science goals and some great technology that's being developed um, in order to make it work, not least in the kind of data, big data mm -hmm. kind of side of things. Um, and, but the other thing I think I'd like to take away as a message is that sort of space is for everyone, right? So you've heard, you heard about my career and it wasn't exactly a kind of linear process. Um, you know, from, it looks like if you look at my undergraduate and now what I do, that it was just a kind of straight line, but it wasn't anything mm -hmm. like that, of course. I kind of, different opportunities came up and I took them and they built different skills, which I think have been useful. Um, and I think that's a message that I'm, I'm keen to kind of give to people is that if you're interested in space, there's all sorts of different ways to get engaged in that. And whatever your sort of career has been so far or whatever area your expertise kind of lies in, that there are, there are kind of routes for you to do what you're interested in. Um, so that's the message I'd like to, like to have people to go away with. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. It's been amazing talking to you. I wish we could keep going, but I know you've got to get on and manage telescopes and radio astronomy <laughs> and all sorts, you know, manage a bunch of scientists. So um, thank you so much for making the time. No, thank you, Annie. I had a really nice time talking to you. Thanks. You've been listening to Space Junk. 
Dr. Pierce is on Twitter as at Space Cricket. You can find me online as at Annie Handmer or send me an email at thespacejunkpod at gmail.com. So, you've got an idea for a business, the store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out, everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media, source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. 